Wealth Attraction Research. Wealth, oh boy, this is, let's check this out here. What's going on? Wealth, hello, hello. God damn it, sometimes. Oh, hey, hey, what's up, Tony? I am having some technical difficulties over on uh, Wisdom, so I have to shut that one down and start this over here again. What is it? Wisdom and the iPhone, such a pain in the ass. All right, so let's take a look. Okay, well, it didn't record. That's good. So I've seen that happen so many times before. It doesn't make any sense. But fortunately, I've cut the... All right. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. Sometimes Rent. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. Sometimes Rent. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, presented by Hakeem Alipokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Call-In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us once again from The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, published in 1776. This section is part two of chapter 11, which is titled Of the Rent of Land. Part one was Of the Produce of Land, which always affords rent. This is part two titled of the produce of land which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. And it's uh, going to be separated from the other installment of Wealth Attraction Research today from the Little Economics book and from How Money Works, which will be done separately because these are a little bit long. And uh, I actually took yesterday off from doing it. I've been doing it every day, but I did do some other really great talks on Colin Spreaker and Wisdom. Uh, I had a great cross-platform talk with uh, Truly Julie, got to meet Jenny Hatch. So Truly Julie on Wisdom got to meet Jenny Hatch on Colin while I was reading. Oh, yeah, I I remember. It was uh, the Capitalist Manifesto, and it was some pretty controversial-sounding content. Um, Robert Kiyosaki has become, as he's become richer and richer, he's become more vocal when you get that so-called FU money, I guess, right? Um, so he's become a lot more, I mean, he already was pretty radical in his views to a lot of people about how he feels about financial education and things like that, but he's gotten even more emboldened, uh, because he's completely financially independent and wealthy. And the book was a good read. Um, again, it is what it is. But this is of the produce of land. This is part of my own course in finance, economics, and wealth attraction research. And I got to get through it. 
you know, one thing I noticed about a lot of um, uh, college and universities that when I talk to a lot of students who have read Wealth of Nations, none of them have read all of the book. People only read pieces of it for their classes. And I, I mean, I find that fascinating, right? Most people in your life, you wouldn't buy a book from the bookstore and just read parts of it, right? <laughs> you don't just get the book and read parts of it for the course. You read a book from cover to cover, especially if you're reading a novel or something like that. I, I suppose that's how a lot of books are supposed to be written or read. I don't know. That's the only way that I know how to do it. I never understood the whole idea, even when I was taking classes in formal education about reading pieces of books and then presuming to know something about the author and the subject. But let's take a look. I know it's kind of begrudging. I mean, some, I don't even want to do it sometimes, but I, you know, because this is some long stuff. Once I get into the reading, though, I pick up the momentum and, and, and then I start learning things and I realize it. That's why I didn't even really want to take that day off from reading this, but it's got to be done. Part two uh, of the... Um, yeah, part two is... Um, of the produce of land which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent but why does it sometimes and sometimes does not afford rent that's why i called it on wisdom sometimes rent like you have space limitations over there all right let's 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 get this show on the road this is a long chapter chapter 11 there's like part three and then part three is even pieced into like three more parts itself so all right Wealth of Nations, Chapter 11, Part 2, of the produce of land, which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. Human food seems to be the only produce of land which always and necessarily affords some rent to the landlord. Other sorts of produce sometimes may and sometimes may not, according to different circumstances. After food... Clothing and lodging are the two great wants of mankind. Land, in its original rude state, can afford the materials of clothing and lodging to a much greater number of people than it can feed. Hmm. Now, you know what? This is interesting because this is actually something I was getting into yesterday. Um, I was in a Discord room or server, whatever the hell those things are called over there. And um, we were talking to some people and it's just interesting, some of the feeble insecurities that some people have about thinking that they know so much about everything. It's amazing how people will start cutting you off and yelling at you when you're simply talking about something that you've read and then say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> because I asked a question and started talking about how you know, I was reading from Babylon's banksters about, you know, some of the origins of money. And I started talking about um, uh, how I, I read that it was, it came from, and I didn't even talk about the book yet. And I just said, well, what about religion? And I said that, you know, I, I'm learning that, that the temples and ancient religions were used to... Um, hide the bullion brokers. By the way, this is relevant to what I'm reading here in Wealth of Nations. And, 
and the uh, and that they used the temple because of the sanctity of it, that people wouldn't dare question what was going on with the money and the value and the prices. So, and now specifically talking about precious metals, gold and silver. And then these two guys sort of cut me off automatically. No, I know you don't know what you're talking about. It goes way back beyond that, you know, back to ancient Egypt. And the funny thing was, first of all, what's really interesting is I didn't even mention a time period and I didn't even finish my story or the main points that I wanted to make, which I which they finally let me because I just calmly spoke and said, guys, I'm, I didn't even say a timeline yet. And the only thing I wanted to talk about was that religions may play a part in where money comes from in some aspects, but also just the two things about value. Because I was trying to get to the point about what the concept of money, and I talked about bartering, and they were just getting really really insecure and one guy was talking so fast and, and they were yelling about it. Um, <laughs> and so the, uh, but the point that I, I, I was making was one uh, that, you know, something I learned first of all in Wealth of Nations, um, which one of them had said, and I didn't even have to coax it out of him because I didn't even mention the book. I didn't even get to mention any books yet. Was that he only partially read Wealth of, Wealth of Nations, not the entire book. Um, and then um, his whole assertion was that money comes from, you know, because people valued it, just because. But they, they basically their answers all came to just because. <laughs> and and, and the, the, the thesis that I'm attempting to figure out, and now Wealth of Nations right here is also going along with uh, or at least it looks like it's leading into is the whole thing about even my uh, my website exercising your mind which is wealth attraction research and if you look at the site for the last 16 years it said on there great health is the truest of all wealth and then now I'm looking here in wealth of nations and um, they're talking right here he's writing about that that after food Clothing and lodging are the two great wants of mankind, right? Food, clothing, shelter, we all, we've all known that, right? But why did money come about? And even Adam Smith didn't go into as complete as an idea I thought he would in the beginning of this with of the, or, the origins and use of money. Babylon's banksters went even further, and, and that was chapter four in Wealth of Nations was of the origin and use of money. Babylon's banksters goes deeper, and it's something that I'd like to follow even further, which talks about um, religion and why. And and the thing is, is people continue to talk about, well, it's because, it's because, because somebody said so, but why? Because remember, money started as a form of trade, like to oversimplify it here, but to also completely uh, share the idea is that the origin of money was because of people bartering. Right? They started trading things with each other. Here, I have some wheat. I'd like a cow. Oh, my cow is not full grown yet. Um, here, let me give you this, this clay tablet or a piece of paper, right? some parchment, that says that I owe you a cow. I'm going to take this wheat now, and I owe you a cow. And so basically that clay tablet right, or the piece of paper or a leaf or whatever the hell it was, represent had something behind it that was backed by it it was a promissory note right a promise to pay something an iou 
right? That's what money is supposed to be. And, I, and I'm claiming that as a fact. Money is supposed to be backed by something. It's a promise that you can, you can get something for that thing that you're holding. It doesn't matter if it's a cowrie shell or a freaking piece of like snail dung or a piece of paper or a clay tablet. It's supposed to be backed by something, right? And so then later on, the guy who gave the wheat, who wants the cow, when the cow's fully grown, at the time he was promised, because, you know, the, the cattle farmer, the cattle rancher, knows how long it takes for the cow to be full grown. That guy goes to him and he says, here's this clay tablet, piece of paper, cowrie shell, whatever it is. That is a promise to that holds the value of the cow, and he gives it to the guy, and the guy gives him the cow. Right? That's money. So that's what money is. And gold and silver have no more intrinsic value. See, these are another things these guys we kept on talking about. Intrinsic value, but intrinsic. But why? Does it have the intrinsic value? Well, because, you know, they used to adorn themselves with it and they wear it. And okay, but, but why? Why do they do that? And no one can give a, give a straight answer. So I have to assert that so far the answer is that it's because of the same reason why many kings and queens and rulers of nations claim their right to be the rulers of these nations because they claimed that they were direct descendants of gods, right? That's especially well known about the history of ancient Egypt and Egyptian empires, right? And other nations before that, we can go back to Babylon, but that was their claim. They came from the, the gods. And so when they decided to use these precious metals, they, they, Place them instead of pieces of paper or leaves or cowrie shells or clay tablets. They use precious metals because they decided to do so. Because they claim they lay claim we're the royal ones, we're gonna do this. Why did they do that? Because they realized by looking at the clay tablets and things like that, and that it had something behind it, that they could put a fiat. They could by claiming what was to be used as the medium of exchange or IOU, right? Instead of it being what people decided amongst themselves, the ruling classes decided that they were going to start using precious metals, one, to standardize it, but because when they standardized it, they could, they could embellish, they could, they could embezzle, if you will. They could, they could uh, what's the word that they use when they, they debased the metals? Right? They could control what it was and therefore get more money from the people. It's a, it, in a way taxing people sometimes without them knowing it because they started issuing the money. So the state first started doing that. And then private banks, private lenders started doing that. But that's, but that's the thing. It goes barter, IOU, which could be anything, right? The shells and everything like that. Barter, IOU and then precious metals or paper. And then paper came later though. That, and that's when they really started screwing things up. But all of it was because of the idea of, they found out that by, by inserting themselves in between, by getting in between the process, they could 
they could get money from for themselves. At first, it started by shaving the sides of coins, right? So that that, for example, one troy ounce wasn't one troy ounce, and then it started debasing by mixing them with other things, right? But the idea of money originally came from exchange and bartering, IOU, and then these different things started coming from the royalty, just like they decided that they were the ones that, that could rule because they were they were descendants of the gods, then they also decided that they should issue the money, and because they found they can get more from people, it all had to do with greed, but no one else seems to be able to give a more satisfactory answer than, than that. It's just, oh, it just had intrinsic value, but why the... Why? Give me a reason. You know, unless you have a better one, then don't start yelling at people <laughs> in your ignorance. Oh my gosh. But let's see what uh, Adam Smith has to continue to say. Can I, I, um, and I got And I'm also going to post this in there. See, this is one thing that I'll do. I'm not going to sit there and argue with people about it, but I will post this in the, the chats over there so they can listen. My, what is Brady over here and Colin call it a proxy debate? <laughs> I can sit there and yell at them about it, have people talking over you about nonsense. Until you give me a better one, right? That's like, like in science, right? Science gets to a point where they have the best thing so far until something better comes along. So this is what, uh, let's return to, uh, man, that was a good, uh, an off-topic rant. How you doing down there, Tony? Are my comments even, I don't see, oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. All right, so, all right, so human food seems to be the only produce of the land which always and necessarily affords some rent to the landlord. Other sorts of produce sometimes may and sometimes may not, according to different circumstances. After food, clothing and lodging are the two great wants of mankind. Land, in its original rude state, can afford the materials of clothing and lodging to a much greater number of people than it can feed. In its improved state, it can sometimes feed a greater number of people than it can supply with those materials, at least in the way in which they require them and are willing to pay for them. In the one state, therefore, there is always a superabundance of those materials, which are frequently, upon that account, of little or no value. In the other, there is often a scarcity, which necessarily augments their value. Yes, augments. You know, this word augment, by the way, um, it means change usually for the better, like improve, right? right? Change, it means an upward change. Is that correct? I always look at the word augment, and I know that I've defined it before, but I, I want to make, be more clear about the dictionary definition. So in my head, at least, because Adam Smith uses it a lot, and I'm pretty sure I understand it. It's um, in the sense that it's being used here which is, uh, okay, let's look at here. Augment. Come on, Googles. Mr. and Mrs. Googles, let's do this. Augment. All right. Make something greater by adding to it. That's right. That's what I thought. Right? 
It might change for the better. Make something greater by adding to it. That's what I like. By adding to it. Okay, so. Alright, so. In other words, there is often a scarcity which necessarily augments their value. So it makes something greater, augments their value. In the, the one state, a great part of them is thrown away as useless, and the price of what is used is considered as equal only to the labor and expense of fitting it for use, and can therefore afford no rent to the landlord. Hmm. In the one state, a great part of them is thrown away as useless, and the price of what is used is considered as equal only to the labor and expense of fitting it for use, and can therefore afford no rent to the landlord. In the other, they are all made use of, and there is frequently a demand for more than can be had. Somebody is always willing to give more for every part of them than what is sufficient to pay the expense of bringing them to market. Their price, therefore, can always afford some rent to the landlord. The skins of the larger animals were the original materials of clothing. Among nations of hunters and shepherds, therefore, whose food consists chiefly in the flesh of those animals, every man, by providing himself with food, provides himself with the materials of more clothing than he can wear. If there was no foreign commerce, the greater part of them would be thrown away as things of no value. This was probably the case among the hunting nations of North America, before their country was discovered by the Europeans, with whom they now exchanged their surplus peltry for blankets, firearms, and brandy, which gives it some value. <clears throat> discovered. In the present commercial state of the known world, the most barbarous nations, I believe, among whom land property is established, have some for foreign commerce of this kind, and find among their wealthier neighbors such a demand for all the materials of clothing which their land produces and which can neither be wrought up nor consumed at home, as raises their prices above what it costs to send them to those wealthier neighbors. It affords, therefore, some rent to the landlord. When the greater part of the highland castle, or excuse me, when the greater part of the highland cattle were consumed on their own hills, the exportation of, the, of their hides made the most considerable article of the commerce of that country, and what they were exchanged for afforded some addition to the rent of the highland estates. The wool of England which in old times could neither be consumed nor wrought up at home, found a market in the then wealthier and more industrious country of Flanders, and its price afforded something to the rent of the land which produced it. So see, all this stuff the affords rent to the land, right? The land that produced it. This is all stuff that's happening, right, on location of these places. That's what we mean by it affords the rent of the land. So this is interesting too about people who would start a business. Why is my wisdom showing three listeners and there's four people in here? Hello, Penny, Frampton, Marcy, Ann, Daryl, the Dashes, Gary, Russell, Hill for stopping through or 
uh, sitting for a spell. Um, this, uh, you know, like, I'm going to continue to point this out too. Think uh, taxes. 99.5% of the tax code is written for you to legally avoid paying taxes. One of the ways you can do that is on your own land, or at least even the land that you rent or own your house that you're buying by uh, starting a home business on your kitchen table, as it said, right? And writing off or subtracting your expenses from your income and therefore being able to pay less taxes. And it goes all the way back even up to, here we're talking about Adam Smith, things that you produce. See, this is related, actually. If you produce, uh, the, producing an animal, like growing an animal on your land and then using it for meat and then selling the furs in other places for money, right, is a business, a transaction, right? And it's the same thing that you can do um, from your home. It's the, these are exactly related things. I hope that you can see where I'm going with that, right? The land, whether you're the landlord or not, if you're renting it, you can still earn money, pay less taxes from the fact that you produce things, whether they be ideas, right, in an office, that you can subtract part of the, the, the rent that you pay from your taxes, right, as you use an office space or part of your house or your even your apartment that you use for business purposes, right, because you're producing something, right? This, this, this part, part two is called of the produce of land, which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent, meaning sometimes does and sometimes does not get money of some kind. Continuing, the wool of England, which in old times could neither be consumed nor wrought up at home, found a market in the then wealthier and more industrious country of Flanders, and its price afforded something to the rent of the land which produced it. In countries not better cultivated than England was then, or than the highlands of Scotland are now, and which had no foreign commerce, the materials of clothing would evidently be so superabundant that a great part of them would be thrown away as useless, and no part could afford any rent to the landlord. Wow. In countries not better cultivated than England was then, or than the highlands of Scotland are now, and which had no foreign commerce, isn't it? They had no way to get rid of the stuff. The materials of clothing would evidently be so super abundant <laughs> that a great part of them would be thrown away as useless and no part could afford any rent to the landlord. You see what this, with all this language is saying, right? This is a, the, what they're saying here is a roundabout in a beautiful way, I might add, um, of, of saying that, that the stuff that is being made there, the, the, all the materials that are being produced on the land, sometimes build up so much that they can't do anything with it. They eventually have to throw it away, and it can afford no rent to the landlord. Meaning the person who, whose land it was that on which it was produced can't get any money for the stuff. There's just so much abundant supply of things happening there that they just have to get rid of it. They can't, it doesn't afford them any rent. I'm also extending this. Don't let that happen to you. Don't have so much waste, you know, like, are you, are there parts of your home that you're just, that you just waste your time there, that you don't read books and study, um, knit something, write something, podcast something, hint, hint, right? 
that you can find a way. And I know people keep, you know, I'm not even going to get into how much people are so averse to the fact that I'm a hardcore capitalist and have been building that up for the past 26 years, right? But whatever they're going to say in favor of, of socialism and communism and all the other BS that people think is good, I'm free market capitalism, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so the materials of lodging cannot always be transported to to so great distance as those of clothing and do not so readily become an object of foreign commerce. Yeah. Right? Logs and shit don't can't travel as, as easily as uh, furs and wools and things like that. Makes sense. When they are so, when, when they are super abundant in the country which produces them, it frequently happens, even in the present commercial state of the world, that they are of no value to the landlord. A good stone quarry in the neighborhood of London would afford a considerable rent. In many parts of Scotland and Wales, it affords none. Barren timber for building is of great value in populous and well and well cultivated country, and the land which produces it affords a considerable rent. See, let's let's look at this too. Landlords, right, who who are afforded rent, meaning can be paid something, right? If they themselves cultivate the land and grow trees and then sell it, they get money for it. That's affording them rent for their land, right? Um, In this case, rent is used more than just somebody who occupies it and pays them for the use of it, which it also means, right? So, and if that person, right, so if they can can get a person to come there and, and grow trees or raise animals, right, and that person can then sell those materials from the trees and the animals and other plants, right, they take a part of that and pay that in rent to the landlord. And that's what it means, afford rent, or sometimes the landlord does it themselves. That's what this indicated. It means basically the affording of rent means being able to get money somehow from the land, either you cultivating yourself and paying rent to a landlord, or you, the landlord yourself, affording yourself rent by selling things off the land yourself. It's got to be clear. It's becoming clearer and clearer to me these meanings as we go along. All right, so... Hmm... When they are super abundant in the country which produces them, it frequently happens, even in the present commercial state of the world, that they are no value to the landlord. A good stone quarry in the neighborhood of London would afford a considerable rent. In many parts of Scotland and Wales, it in Wales it affords none. Barren timber for building is of great value in a populous and well-cultivated country, and the land which produces it affords a considerable rent. But many parts of North America the landlord would be much obliged to anybody who would carry away the greater parts of his large trees. In some, right, he would be much obliged, he would be thankful if they did, right? But in many parts of North America, the landlord would be much obliged to anybody who would carry away the greater part of his large trees. In some parts of the highlands of Scotland, the bark is the only part of the wood which, for want of roads and water carriage, can be sent to market. Right, so also this can't be transported like we were saying before, right? The timber is left to rot upon the ground. When the materials of lodging are so superabundant, the, the part made use of is worth only the labor and expense of fitting it for that use, right? When the materials of lo- lodging are so superabundant, 
Right? So you got all the, like, let's say you were using logs to make a cabinet, right? When, when that's so super abundant, the part made use of, right? The part made use of is worth only the labor and expense of fitting it for that use. Because you can't, there's so much of it that only the part that's made use of for that, right? That's, that's cut and made to the, the right sizes, right? Is worth only, meaning can be paid only, will, will only sell for the amount of the labor, right? People who did that and the expense of fitting it for that use. So that's all it's going to be, right? But listen to this. It comes next. It affords no rent to the landlord who generally grants the use of it, whoever takes the trouble of asking it. <laughs> right? It's so super abundant. It's like, please get this timber off of my lawn. Can you imagine a time when there were so many freaking trees that people were like, get it out of here. We have too many trees. That's not yeah, that's not the way it is now. We got so many trees, please get rid of it. The demand of wealthier nations, however, sometimes enables him to get a rent for it. The paving of the streets of London has enabled the owners of some barren rocks on the coast of Scotland to draw a rent from what what never afforded any before. The woods of Norway and of the coast of the Baltic find a market in many parts of Great Britain which they could not find at home and thereby afford some rent to their proprietors. Countries are populous, not in proportion to the number of people whom their produce can clothe and lodge, but in proportion to that of those whom it can feed. Mm. Countries are populous, not in proportion to the number of people whom their produce can clothe and lodge, but in proportion to that of those whom it can feed. So does that mean that India and China is populous because it, it, um, it can feed all those people? That's what he's saying here, right? When food is provided, it is easy to find the necessary clothing and lodging. But though these are at hand, it may be it it may often be difficult to find food. Hmm. Makes, seems to make some sense. All right. So so even if clothing and lodging are at hand, it might be difficult to find food. In some parts, even of the British dominions, what is called a house may be built by one day's labor of one man. <laughs> what is called a house? Maybe built in by one day's labor. One man, yeah, pitch a tent, folks. The simplest species of clothing, the skins of animals, require somewhat more labor to dress and prepare them for use. They do not, however, require a great deal. Among savages and barbarous nations, a hundredth or a little more than a hundredth part of the labor of the whole year will be sufficient to provide them with such clothing and lodging as satisfy the greater part of the people. All the other 99 parts are frequently no more than enough to provide them with food. But when by, but when by the improvement and cultivation of land, the labor of one family can provide food for two, the labor of half the society becomes sufficient to provide food for the whole. 
The other half, therefore, or at least the greater part of them, can be employed in providing other things, or in satisfying the other wants and fancies of mankind. Clothing and lodging, household furniture, and what is called equipage, are the principal objects of the greater part of those wants and fancies. What's equipage? Does that have anything to do with horses, equestrian, equine? I, I probably not. Let me take a look at Mr. and Mrs. Google's once again, equipage. Anybody know what's equipage? Equipage. Sounds like a word that comes from France. Uh, equipage. Okay, the equipment for a particular purpose. Historical, a carriage and horses with a ta- See, that's what happens when you read a lot, guys. You come across these words and you start to know the word parts. So, yes, it does have something to do with horses. wasn't that far off, but there. Archaic is the equipment for a particular purpose. And historical, it's a carriage and horses with attendants. Dang, I'm good. Sometimes I impress myself. <laughs> so that makes me, you don't understand how happy that makes a nerd like me to... To know that looking at a word, I can figure it out. Equipage. All right, so clothing and lodging, household furniture, and what is called equipage are the principal objects of the greater part of those wants and fancies. The rich man consumes no more food than his poor neighbor. Hmm. In e- some, some of those, uh, those pudgy dudes from back in the day. The rich man consumes no more food than his poor neighbor. In quality, it may be very different, and to select and prepare it may require more labor and art, but in quantity, it is very nearly the same. But compare the spacious palace and great wardrobe of the one with the hovel and the few rags of the other, and you will be sensible that the difference between their clothing, lodging, and household furniture is almost as great in quantity as it is in quality. The desire of food is limited in every man by the narrow capacity of the human stomach, but the desire of the conveniences and ornaments of building, dress, equipage, and household furniture seems to have no limit or certain boundary. Those, therefore, who have the command of more food than they themselves can consume are always willing to exchange the surplus, or, what is the same thing, the price of it, for gratifications of this other kind. What is over and above satisfying the limited desire is given for the amusement of those desires which cannot be satisfied but seem to be altogether endless. Makes sense, right? You got so much more food to exchange it for other stuff, right? The poor, in order to obtain food, exert themselves to gratify gratify those fancies of the rich and to obtain it more certainly. They vie with one another in the cheapness and perfection of their work. The number of workmen increases with the increasing quantity of food or with the growing improvement and cultivation of the lands and as the nature of their business admits of the utmost subdivisions of labor. The quantity of material which they can work up increases in a much greater proportion than their numbers. Hence arises a demand for every sort of material which human invention can employ, either usefully or ornamentally in building, dress, equipage, or household furniture, for the fossils and minerals contained in the bowels of the earth, the precious metals, and the precious stones. Mm. 
there are those precious metals and precious stones. All right, that's page 144. I got to make a note of that. Food in this manner, not only the original source of rent, but every other part of the produce of land which, which afterwards afford, affords rent, derives that part of its value from the improvement of the powers of labor in producing food by means of the improvement and cultivation of land. Those other parts of the produce of land, however, which afterwards afford rent, do not afford it always. Right. Even in improved and cultivated countries, the demand for them is not always such as to afford a greater price than what is sufficient to pay the labor and replace, together with its ordinary profits, the stock which must be employed in bringing them to market. Whether it is or is not such depends upon different circumstances. Whether a coal mine, for example, can afford any rent depends partly upon its fertility and partly upon its situation. A mine of any kind may be said to be either fertile or barren according as the quantity of mineral which can be brought from it by a certain quantity of labor is greater or less than what can be brought by an equal quantity from the greater part of other mines of the same kind. Hmm. Right, so it's barren or fertile according to the quantity of material which can be brought from it by a certain quantity of labor, whether it's greater or less than what can be brought by an equal quantity from the greater part of other mines at the same time. And again, that's about transportation, the roads and things like that, and whether there are waterways that can be transported across. So, wow, it's, so the mine can be said to be barren, even though it might have a whole bunch of coal in it, even if, even if the reason that you can't get the coal transported out of it. Good point. All right. I mean, that's even still today. I mean, some mines are so dangerous. Right, that that it's almost impossible to get stuff out of it. That they're just like, man, there's so much stuff there. We just we can't get to it. People just keep on falling into holes and things collapsing on top of their heads. Can't make any use of it. All right. Mm. Some coal mines, advantageously situated, cannot be wrought on account of their barrenness. The produce does not pay the expense. They can afford neither profit nor rent. Right? Some coal mines advantageously, advantageously situated cannot be wrought on account of their barrenness. Right? So it's in a in a good situation, right? It's situated in a good place. But they also one one of the definitions of barrenness is that they don't have enough enough coal can't be gotten out of it. So they so the produce does not pay the expense. They can afford neither profit nor rent. There are some of which the produce is barely sufficient to pay the labor and replace together with its ordinary profits the stock employed in working. And remember, the stock employed um, are like the tools and machines. That's some of the stock that they're talking about, right? The stock is not always things that can be sold other commodities, although tools of the trade are things that can be bought and sold. Um, that's, that's some of the stock, is the machinery and things that they use to get it, right? So there are some of which the produce is barely sufficient to pay the labor and replace together with its ordinary profits the stock employed in working them. They afford some profit to the undertaker of the work, 
but no rent to the landlord. They can be wrought advantageously by nobody but the landlord, who, being himself undertaker of the work, gets the ordinary profit of the capital which he employs in it. That's what I was talking about earlier, right? That sometimes um, the one, the only one who can make anything from it is a landlord. You can't rent it out to someone else because someone else might go on that land, work it, but then because of the cost of the stock that they had to buy, right, the tools of the trade to it, right, and even and then even to just get some profit from that and even pay themselves or the laborers that they hired to work those tools, right, they would make no profit. So they look at it as it's not something I'm going to do. So the only one sometimes who can make any money off of it is the landlord themselves, right? So they can be wrought advantageously by nobody but the landlord who, being himself undertaker of the work, gets the ordinary profit of the capital which he employs in it. Many coal mines in Scotland are wrought in this manner and can be wrought in no other. The landlord will allow nobody else to work them without paying some rent, and nobody can afford to pay anything. See, there it goes. Other coal mines in the same country, sufficiently fertile, cannot be wrought on account of their situation. A quantity of mineral sufficient to defray the expense of working could be wrought from the mine by the ordinary or even less than the ordinary quantity of labor. But in an inland country, thinly inhabited, and without either good roads or water carriage, this quantity could not be sold. Again, that's another part of of transporting it. So you might even have a, whole, a great coal mine, right? And other coal mines in the same country, sufficiently fertile, cannot be wrought on account of their situation. A quantity of mineral sufficient to defray the expense of working could be brought from the mine by the ordinary or even less than the ordinary quantity of labor. But in an inland country, thinly inhabited and without either good roads or water carriage, this quantity could not be sold. Coals are a less agreeable fuel than wood. They are said to they are said too to be less wholesome. Hmm. What does that mean by less wholesome? Right, that they're they're not as that coals are less agreeable and less wholesome. Meaning they're probably more toxic. Right, they're not as wholesome. More toxic. That that unwholesome coal. They're less wholesome. The expense of coals, therefore, at the place where they are consumed must generally be somewhat less than that of wood. So it's less expensive because it's not as wholesome. Like, why would you buy something that's less healthy? Right? By the way, that's the, one of the roots of the word health is whole, heal, whole, wholesome, right? <clears throat> Those are related words. The price of wood, again, varies with the state of agriculture nearly in the same manner and exactly for the same reason as the price of cattle. In its rude beginnings, the greater part of every country is covered with wood, which is then a mere encumbrance of no value to the landlord who would gladly give it to anybody for the cutting. As agriculture advances, the woods are partly cleared by the progress of tillage and partly go to decay in consequence of the increased number of cattle. These, though, they do not increase in the same proportion as corn, which is altogether the acquisition of human industry, yet multiply under the care and protection of men who store up in the season of plenty what may maintain them in that of scarcity, who through the whole year furnish them with a greater quantity of food than uncultivated nature provides them, and 
who by destroying and extirpating the, their enemies secure them in the free enjoyment of all that she provides. Numerous herds of cattle, when allowed to wander through the woods, though they do not destroy the old trees, hinder any young ones from coming up, so that in the course of a century or two, the whole forest goes to ruin. The scarcity of wood then raises its price. It affords a good rent, and the landlord sometimes finds that he can scarce employ his best hands more advantageously than in growing barren timber, of which the greatness of the profit often compensates the lateness of the returns. This seems, in the present times, to be nearly the state of things in several parts of Great Britain, where the profit of planting is found to be equal to that either of corn or pasture. The advantage which the landlord derives from planting can nowhere exceed, at least for any considerable time, the rent which these could afford him, and in the inland country, which is highly cultivated, it will frequently not fall much short of this in rent. So this is talking about things being over, over forested, things being cut down way too much, and now that the wood is scarce, you can charge more for it. That's why wood is so expensive. And even now, right, can't, can't force trees to grow fast. Right. Upon the seacoast of a well-improved country, indeed, if coals can conveniently be had for fuel, it may sometimes be cheaper to bring barren timber for building from the less cultivated foreign countries than to raise it at home. In the new town of Edinburgh, in Edinburgh, built within these few years, there is not perhaps a single stick of Scottish timber. Whatever, the, whatever may be the price of wood, if that of coals is such that the expense of a coal fire is nearly equal to that of a wood one, we may be assured that at, a, that at that place and in these circumstances, the price of coals is as high as it can be. It seems to be so in some of the inland parts of England, particularly in Oxfordshire, where it is usual, even in the fires of the common people, to mix coals and wood together, and where the difference in the expense of those two sorts of fuels cannot, therefore, be very great. Coal, in the coal countries, are everywhere much below this highest price. If they were not, they could not bear the expense of distant carriage, either by land or by water. A small quantity only could be sold, and the coal masters and coal proprietors find it more for their interest to sell a great quantity at a price somewhat above the lowest than a small quantity at the highest. The most fertile coal mine, too, regulates the price of coals at all the other mines in its neighborhood. Both the proprietor and the undertaker of the work find the one that he can get a greater rent the other that he can get a greater profit by somewhat underselling all their neighbors. Their neighbors are soon obliged to sell at the same price, so they cannot. I don't know. Bother me not phone calls. All right, so their neighbors are soon obliged to sell at the same price, though they cannot so well afford it and though it always diminishes and sometimes takes away altogether both their rent and their profit. Some works are abandoned altogether. Others can afford no rent and can be wrought only by the proprietor. <clears throat> the lowest price at which coals can be sold for any considerable time is, like that of all other commodities, the price which is barely sufficient to replace together with its ordinary profits, the stock which must be employed in bringing them to market. 
at a coal mine for which the landlord can get no rent, but which he must either work himself or let it alone altogether, the price of coals must generally be nearly about this price. Rent, even where coals afford one, has generally a smaller share in their price than in that of most other parts of the rude produce of land. The rent of an estate above ground commonly amounts to what is supposed to be a third of the gross produce, and it is generally a rent certain and, and independent of the occasional variations in the crop. In coal mines, a fifth of the gross produce is a very great rent, a tenth the common rent, and it is seldom a rent certain, but depends upon the occasional variations in the produce. These are so great that in a country where 30 years' purchase is considered as a moderate price for the property for a landed estate, 10 years' purchase is regarded as a good price for that of a coal mine. The value of a coal mine to the proprietor frequently depends as much upon its situation as upon its fertility. That of a metallic mine depends more upon its fertility and less upon its situation. Right, because uh, the metals, right, everybody, the, the, the value that we put on those precious metals for for reasons unknown to most people have no idea why these precious metals, right, why, why we put this value on them. Why, oh, why? Right? Because in times past, their most, their most pressing use, especially for gold and silver, which you couldn't use for most tools, was ornamentation. Why ornamentation? Right? What were they? There, there were other things you can get to look just as shiny and pretty. You could make brass and and copper and tin and aluminum and and iron even and other things look really really super shiny. Other metals look super beautiful and shiny, just as much as silver and gold. So why were they so much more valuable? And, and not only that, but they were more durable than silver and gold. Some of the some of these metals, right, were harder and didn't bend and, and dent as easily, right? Well, religion, back to the, the gods, right? Because they decided it's going to be these two. Of course, there is different... Uh, man, I don't even want to get into the scarcity and the abundance of the material because they're not as gold and silver are not scarce just um just take that right now and do some research on it yourself they're, they're not scarce at all they are precious because it was decided a long time ago by royalty who claim to be divinity or descendants and of divinity we'll leave it there for right now all right um these are so great I mean, nowadays, right, gold and silver can be used in electronics and other materials, right? But before they weren't used for that. Or were they? Maybe Babylon's banksters uh, talked about the technology they were used in. But um, let me not stray too far from this. Let me see how much more I got to go. Because this is a long... Okay, good. I got three more pages between six sides. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, so... These are so great that in a country where 30 years purchase is considered as a moderate price for the property for a landed estate, 10 years purchase is regarded as a good price for that of a coal mine. The value of a coal mine 
to the proprietor frequently depends as much upon its situation, where it's located, as upon its fertility. That a metallic mine depends more upon its fertility and less upon its situation. The coarse and still more the precious metals, when separated from the ore, are so valuable that they can generally bear the expense of a very long land and of the most distant sea carriage. Their market is not confined to the countries in the neighborhood of the mind, but extends to the whole world. Does anybody ever wonder about that? Right? Do you ever wonder more deeply about why the metals are considered so so valuable? Right? Oh, man, it's just listen to I mean just listen to what's being said here. The coarse and still more the precious metals when separate so the coarse, right? And still more, the abundant, right? The precious metals, when separated from the ore, are so valuable that they can generally bear the extents of a very long land and of the most distant sea carriage. Their market is not confined to the countries in the neighborhood of the mine, but extends to the whole world, right? Where before, like coal, timber, you know, if, the, if it's too hard to carry by land, fuck it. It's just going to rot. <laughs> we're, gonna forget, we're just going to abandon it, right? But, but oh no, these precious metals, when separated from the ore, are so valuable, they can generally bear the expense of a very long land carriage and, a very, and the most distant sea carriage. Their market is not confined to the countries in the neighborhood of the mine, but extends to the whole world. The copper of Japan makes an article of commerce in Europe, the iron of Spain in that of Chile and Peru. The silver of Peru finds its way not only to Europe, but from Europe to China. Like, listen to that, right? But the, the, the copper of Japan makes an article of commerce in Europe. The iron of Spain in that of Chile and Peru. The silver of Peru finds its way not only to Europe, but from Europe to China. Good Lord. The price of coals in Westmoreland or Shropshire can have little effect on their price at Newcastle. And their price in the Lyonnois can have none at all. The productions of such distant coal mines can never be brought into competition with one another. But the production of the most distant metallic mines frequently may, and in fact commonly are. The price, therefore, of the coarse and still more that of the precious metals at the most fertile mines in the world must necessarily more or less affect their price at every other in it. The price of copper in Japan must have some influence upon its price at the copper mines in Europe. The price of silver in Peru, or the quantity either of labor or of other goods which it will purchase there, must have some influence on its price not only at the silver mines of Europe, but at those of China. After the discovery of the mines of Peru, the silver mines of Europe were, the greater part of them, abandoned. What? After the discovery of the mines of Peru, the silver mines of Europe were, the greater part of them, abandoned. The value of silver was so much reduced that their produce could no longer pay the expense of working them or replace with, the, with a profit the food, clothes, lodging, and other necessities which were consumed in that operation. So you see, because they were like, oh, we found it in this other place, that it it affected the price because they could get it in other places. This was the case too 
with the mines of Cuba and St. Domingo, and even with the ancient mines of Peru after the discovery of those of Potosi. The price of every metal at every mine, therefore, being regulated in some measure by its price at the most fertile mine in the world that is actually wrought, it can at the greater part of mines do very little more than pay the expense of working and can seldom afford a very high rent to the landlord. Rent, accordingly, seems at the greater part of mines to have but a small share in the price of the horse and still a smaller in that of the precious metals. Put this over here. Precious metals. Yes. Labor and profit make up the greater part of both. A sixth part of the gross produce may be reckoned the average rent of the tin mines of Cornwall the most fertile that are known in the world, as we are told by the Reverend Mr. Borlas, Vice Warden of the Stanmaries, or Stanneries, uh, hmm. a sixth part of the gross produce may be reckoned the average rent of the tin mines of Cornwall, the most fertile that are known in the world, as we are told by the Reverend Mr. Borlas, Vice Warden of the Stanneries. Some, he says, afford more, and some do not afford so much. A sixth part of the gross produce is the rent, too, of several very fertile lead mines in Scotland. In the silver mines of Peru, we are told by the Frezier and the Uloa, the proprietor frequently exacts no other acknowledgement from the undertaker of the mine, but that he will grind the ore at his mill, paying him the ordinary um, paying him the ordinary multer or price of grinding. Multer. Okay. What is that? Multer. Multer. Paying the ordinary multer. Multer. M-U-L-T-U-R. Multer. A toll of grain or flour due to a miller in return for grinding grain. Hmm. Multer. A toll of grain or flour due to a miller in return for grinding grain. Okay, so it just means the grain that's given to the guy who grinds it, to the miller, right? In return for doing it, for the grinding. Okay, gotcha. All right, so um, in the silver mines of Peru, we are told by Frezier and Uloa, the proprietor frequently exacts no other acknowledgement from the undertaker of the mine but that he will grind the ore at his mill, paying him the ordinary mulcher or price of grinding. In 17, in this case, it's, it's iron mulcher, it's ore mulcher. So the proprietor frequently exacts no other acknowledgement from the undertaker of the mine, but that he will grind the ore at his mill, paying him the ordinary mulcher or price of grinding. I mean, it said it right there, mulcher or price of grinding. Till 1736, indeed, the tax of the king of Spain amounted to one-fifth the standard silver, which till then might be considered as the real rent of the greater part of the silver mines of Peru, the richest which have been known in the world. If there had been no tax, this fifth would naturally have belonged to the landlord, and many mines might have been wrought which could not then be wrought because they could not afford this tax. So here we go. The tax is getting in the way. See, again, look at this shit. Remember, rule number one of taxes, it's your money, not the government's. 
Until 1736, indeed, the tax of the King of Spain amounted to one-fifth of the standard silver, which till then might be considered as the real rent of the greater part of the silver mines of Peru, the richest which have been known in the world. If there had been no tax, this fifth would naturally have belonged to the landlord, and many mines might have been wrought which could not then be wrought because they could not afford this tax. The tax of the Duke of Cornwall upon tin is supposed to amount to more than 5% of or 120th part of the value, and whatever may be his proportion, it would naturally too belong to the proprietor of the mine if tin was duty-free. Oh, they're even using the word duty-free back then. You, know, you see that you see that all the time in um, uh, in airports, right? You guys, you guys travel a lot. They're duty-free, right? You don't have to pay any taxes at some of the airports. Some of the uh, uh, I used to see that all the time. I travel so much um, that. That was one of my favorite things to see, is, uh, is things without taxes to buy in those airports. Okay. All right. But if you add 120th to 16th, you will find that the whole average rent of the tin mines of Cornwall was to the whole average rent of the silver mines of Peru as 13 to 12. But the silver mines of Peru are not now able to pay even this low rent, and the tax upon silver was, in 1736, reduced from one-fifth to one-tenth. Even this tax upon silver, give, too, gives more temptation to smuggling than the tax of one-twentieth upon tin, and smuggling must be much easier in the precious than in the bulky commodity. The tax of the King of Spain, accordingly, is said to be very ill-paid, and that of the Duke of Cornwall very well. Rent, therefore, it is probable, makes a greater part of the price of tin at the most fertile tin mines than it does of silver at the most fertile silver mines in the world. See, because these, these kings, these rulers, they're, they're taxing people. And one of the things, too, of getting in the middle of the money, get more of it, because people are always going to find ways to cheat their taxes, even though it's illegal, right, in the United States. But most people don't know that, and so therefore they're not doing it legally because they think that they have to ev they have to, uh, to um, evade rather than avoid. See, tax avoidance is legal. The word evade, evasion, is using the illegal sense of it. Right, so the... So, even this tax upon silver, too, gives more temptation to smuggling, even though that was reduced, right, from one-fifth to one-tenth. That's half, right? From one-twentieth to, right, to, to one-tenth. I'm sorry, from one-fifth to one-tenth. So a fifth is 20% to one-tenth, which is 10%. Right? Even this tax upon silver, too, gives more temptation to smuggling than the tax of one-twentieth upon tin, and smuggling must be much easier in the precious than in the bulky commodity. The tax of the King of Spain accordingly is said to be very ill-paid, and that of the Duke of Cornwall very well. Right? Rent, therefore, it is probable, makes a greater part of the price of tin at the most fertile tin mines than it does of silver at the most fertile silver mines in the world. 
after replacing the stock employed in working those different mines together with its ordinary profits, the residue which remains to the proprietor is greater, it seems, in the coarse than in the precious metal. Neither are the profits of the undertakers of silver mines commonly very great in Peru. The same most respectable and well-informed authors acquaint us that when any person undertakes to work a new mine in Peru, he is universally looked upon as a man destined to bankruptcy and ruin, and is upon that account shunned and avoided by everybody. Mining, it seems, is considered there in the same light as here, as a lottery in which the prizes do not compensate the blanks, though the greatness of some tempts many so though the greatness of some tempts many adventurers to throw away their fortunes in such unprosperous projects. As the sovereign, however, derives a considerable part of his revenue from the produce of silver mines, the law in Peru gives every possible encouragement to the discovery and working of new ones. Whoever discovers a new mine is entitled to measure off 246 feet in length according to what he supposes to be the direction of the vein, and half as much in breadth. He becomes proprietor of his own portion of the mine and can work it without paying any acknowledgement to the landlord. The interest of the Duke of Cornwall has given occasion to a regulation nearly of the same kind in that ancient duchy. In waste and in and uh, excuse me, in waste and unenclosed lands, any person who discovers a tin mine may mark out its limits to a certain extent, which is called bounding a mine. The bounder becomes the real proprietor of the mine and may either work it himself or give it in lease to another without the consent of the owner of the land, to whom, however, a very small acknowledgement must be paid upon working it. In both regulations, the sacred rights, the sacred, in both regulations, the sacred rights of private property are sacrificed to the supposed interests of public, of public revenue. The same encouragement is given in Peru to the ordin to in the same encouragement is given in Peru to the discovery and working of new gold mines, and in gold the king's tax amounts only to a twentieth part of the standard metal. It was once a fifth, and afterwards a tenth, as in silver, but it was found that the work could not bear even the lowest of these two taxes. If it is rare, however, say the same authors, Frazier and Uloa, to find a person who has made his fortune by a silver, it is still much rarer to find one who has done so by a gold mine. This twentieth part seems to be the whole rent which is paid by the greater part of the gold mines in Chile and Peru. Gold, too, is much more liable to be smuggled than even silver, not only on account of the superior value of the metal in proportion to its bulk, but on account of the peculiar way in which nature produces it. Silver is very seldom found virgin, but, like most other metals, is generally mineralized with some other body from which it is impossible to separate it in such quantities as will pay for the expense. 
but by a very laborious and tedious operation, which cannot well be carried on, but in workhouses erected for the purpose, and therefore exposed to the inspection of the king's officers. Gold, on the contrary, is almost always found virgin. It is sometimes found in pieces of it is sometimes found in pieces of some bulk, and even when mixed in small and almost insensible particles with sand, earth, and other extraneous bodies, it can be separated from them by a very short and simple operation, which can be carried on in any private house by anybody who is possessed of a small quantity of mercury. If the king's tax, therefore, is but ill paid upon silver, it is likely to be much worse paid upon gold, and rent much must make a much smaller part of the price of gold than even that of silver. The lowest price at which the precious metals can be sold or the smallest quantity of other goods for which they can be exchanged during any considerable time is regulated by the same principles which fix the lowest ordinary price of all other goods. The stock which must commonly be employed, the food, clothes, and lodging must commonly be consumed in bringing them from the mine to the market determinate. It must at least be sufficient to replace that stock with the ordinary profits. Their highest price, however, seems not to be necessarily determined by anything but the actual scarcity or plenty of those metals themselves. It is not determined by that of any other commodity in the same manner as the price of coals is that by is by that of wood, beyond which no scarcity can ever raise it. Increase the scarcity of gold to a certain degree, and the smallest bit of it may become more precious than a diamond, and exchange for a greater quantity of other goods. <laughs> you hear that? Increase the scarcity of gold to a certain degree, and the smallest bit of it may become more precious than a diamond and exchange for a greater quantity of other goods. Again, these arbitrary prices, right? It's this price fiction. All right, almost done here, thankfully. The demand for these metals arises partly from their utility and partly from their beauty. If you accept iron, they are more useful, perhaps, than any other metal. As they are less liable to rust and impurity, they can more easily be kept clean. And the utensils either of the table or the kitchen are often upon that account more agreeable when made of them. A silver boiler is more cleanly than a lead, copper, or tin one. Oh my God, people had lead boilers. And the same quality would render a gold boiler still better than a silver one. Their principal merit, however, arises from their beauty, which renders them particularly fit for the ornaments of dress and furniture. No paint or dye can give so splendid a color as gilding. The merit of their beauty is greatly enhanced by their scarcity. With the greater part of rich people, the chief enjoyment of richness of riches consists in the parade of riches, which is in their eye is never which in their eye is never so complete as when they appear to possess those decisive marks of opulence which nobody can possess but themselves. Right? Oh, here we're going. 
that's it right there. That's the that's the mark right there, right? No paint or dye can give so splendid a color as gilding. The merits of their beauty is greatly enhanced by their scarcity. With the greater part of rich people, the chief employment of riches consists in the parade of riches, which in their eye is never so complete as when they appear to possess those decisive marks of opulence which nobody can possess but themselves. In their eyes, the merit of an object which is in any degree either useful or beautiful is greatly enhanced by its scarcity or by the labor which it requires to collect any considerable quantity of it, a labor which nobody can afford to pay but themselves, right? Right, which is why, um, well, I'm not going to talk about certain things. All right. Such objects they are willing to purchase at a higher price than things much more beautiful and useful, but more common. These qualities of utility, beauty, and scarcity are the original foundations of the high price of those metals. Whoa, what did we just touch on? I found something that I was searching for. These qualities of utility, beauty, and scarcity are the original foundation of the high price of those metals. Okay, so it is utility, beauty, and scarcity. I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna take it from Adam Smith as uh, on faith that what he's saying is right because his book still rules the fucking world, by the way. People have no idea. When you look at economic and finance, if you read any little bit of this book and you know anything about economic and finance, by the way, tonight is a full moon, I think. I'm going to go out with my wand that I created and um, do some moon magic. All right, so what does he say? Utility, beauty, and scarcity. Utility, beauty, Scarcity. Now I have a, de a working definition here. Um, original foundation of the high price of metals. Original foundation of the high price of metals. All right. I mean, we already knew that, but not put it in so, so utility, beauty, and scarcity are the original foundation of the high price of those metals. I want to find one more. When we're talking about foundation. That's three. Like we got we got three-legged stools and three-legged chairs, but they're more stable and on a, a better foundation when you have a, a fourth leg, right? So we got utility, beauty, and scarcity are the original foundation of the high price of those metals, or of the great quantity of other goods for which they can everywhere be exchanged. These qualities of utility, beauty, and scarcity are the original foundation of the high price of those, metal, of those metals or of the great quantity of other goods for which they are can everywhere be exchanged. So exchange. Exchange is the fourth way. That's it. Utility, beauty, scarcity, and exchange. Exchange value. That's it. Exchange, right? But, but it can be exchanged because of beauty, um, utility, and scarcity. All right. The demand, okay, so this value was antecedent and independent 
of their being employed as coin and was the quality which fitted them for that employment. So this value was antecedent, right, before and independent of their being employed as coin and was the quality which fitted them for that employment. That employment, however, by occasioning a new demand and by diminishing the quantity which could be employed in any other way, may have afterwards contributed to keep up or increase their value. That employment, however, by occasioning a new demand and by diminishing the quantity which could be employed in any other way, may have afterwards contributed to keep up or increase their value. Again, scarcity. The demand for the precious stones arises altogether from their beauty. They are of no use, but as ornaments, and the merit of their beauty is greatly enhanced by their scarcity. That I will have to argue it's not. Um, there were what others in the past called magical properties of the stones is what, what made them valuable because they actually have, they call them magical properties, but they're actually um, technological properties. So I'm going to put that down as the value. Um, so technological, techno, um, spiritual, magical were the contributed to the the value of stones as well as their beauty I mean of course they're beautiful okay so let me put that down all right it's good the demand for the precious stones arises altogether from their beauty they are of no use but as ornaments and the merit of their beauty is greatly enhanced by their scarcity or by the difficulty and expense of getting them from the mine. Wages and profit accordingly make up upon most occasions most, almost the whole of their high price. Rent comes in but for a very small share, frequently for no share, and the most fertile mines only afford any considerable rent. When Tavernier, a jeweler, visited the diamond mines of Golconda and Viziapur, uh, he was informed that the sovereign of the country, for whose benefit they were wrought, had ordered all of them to be shut up except those which yielded the largest and finest stones. In others, it seems, were to the proprietor not worth the working, as the price both of the precious metals and of the precious stones is regulated all over the world by their price at the most fertile mine in it. The rent which a mine of either can afford to its proprietor is in proportion not to its absolute, but to what may be called its relative fertility or to its superiority over other mines of the same kind. If new mines were discovered as much superior to those of Potosi as they were superior to those of Europe, the value of silver might be so much degraded as to render even the mines of Potosi not worth the working. Before the discovery, of the Spanish West Indies, my family's from Trinidad, Tobago, um, the most fertile mines in Europe may have afforded as great a rent to their proprietor as the richest mines in Peru do at present, though the quantity of silver mines, or though the quantity of silver was much less, it might have exchanged for an equal quantity of other goods and the proprietor's share might have enabled him to purchase or command an equal quantity either of labor or of commodities. The value both of the produce and of the rent 
the real revenue which they afforded both to the public and to the proprietor might have been the same. The most abundant mines, either of the precious metals or of the precious stones, could add little to the wealth of the world. A produce of which the value is principally derived from its scarcity is necessarily degraded by its abundance. This again, right? It's again. A produce of which the value is principally derived from its scarcity is necessarily degraded by its abundance. A service of plate. A service of plate and the other frivolous ornaments of dress and furniture could be purchased for a smaller quantity of labor or for a smaller quantity of commodities, and in this would consist the whole advantage which the world could derive from that abundance. It is otherwise in estates above ground. The value both of their produce and of their rent is in proportion to their absolute and not to their relative fertility. The land which produces a certain quantity of foods, clothes, and lodging can always feed, clothe, and lodge a certain number of people. And whatever may be the proportion of the landlord, it will always give him a proportionable command of the labor of those people and of the commodities with which that labor can supply him. The value of the most barren lands is not diminished by the neighborhood of the most fertile. On the contrary, it is generally increased by it. The greater number of people maintained by the fertile lands afford a market to many parts of the produce of the barren, which they could never have found among those whom their own produce could maintain. Whatever increases the fertility of land in producing food increases not only the value of the lands upon which the improvement is bestowed, but contributes likewise to increase that of many other lands by creating a new demand for their produce. That abundance of food, of which, in consequence of the improvement of the land, many people have the disposal beyond what they themselves can consume, is the great cause of the demand both of, for the precious metals and the precious stones, as well as for every other conveniency and ornament of dress, lodging, household, furniture, and equipage. I've got to say that again. That abundance of food, of which, in consequence of the improvement of land, many people have the disposal beyond what they themselves can consume, is the great cause of the demand for both the precious metals and the precious stones, as well as for every other conveniency and ornament of dress, lodging, household furniture, and equipage. Food not only constitutes the principal part of the riches of the world, but it is the abundance of food which gives the principal part of their value to many other sorts of riches. The poor inhabitants of Cuba and St. Domingo, when they were first discovered by the Spaniards, used to wear little bits of gold as ornaments in their hair and other parts of their dress. They seemed to value them as we would do any little pebbles of somewhat more than ordinary beauty, and to consider them as just worth the picking up, but not worth the refusing to anybody who asked them. Oh, this is down to the fucking core. They gave them to their new guests at the first request without seeming to think that they had made them any very valuable present. 
They were astonished to observe the rage of the Spaniards to attain them, and had no notion that there could anywhere be a country in which many people had the disposal of so great a superfluity of food, so scanty always among themselves, that for a very small quantity of those glittering baubles, that they would willingly give as much as might maintain a whole family for many years. Could they have been made to understand this, the passion of the Spaniards would not have surprised them. Yo, I just found what I was looking for. If I would have read this before, I would have smacked those dudes upside the head that were young. Oh, digitally smacked. All right, well, that's the end of this reading. It's been an hour and a half, which is good underneath the, t the two hours now that I've discovered I can do on Wisdom and still be able to download the whole of it, which is good. So this was uh, Wealth of Nations, um, Chapter 11, Part 2 which was titled uh, On the Produce of Land, which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent. <clears throat> I'm done for now. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, Sometimes Rent, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for world reading club in association with unique equilibrium this edition's reading focus came to us from wealth of nations by adam smith 1776 chapter 11 part 2 of the produce of land which sometimes does and sometimes does not afford rent i'll be coming back with some small short excerpts from the little book of economics and how money works in the very next upcoming installment in a few moments of Wealth Attraction Research.